take your Bibles tonight and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 with me. Ephesians chapter number 6. <clears throat> We're going to look at verses 10 through 13. This passage is the passage that I preached my very first sermon from. It was New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1988. That was a few years ago. Uh, how many of you weren't even born in 1988? Wow. Brother Mike, I'm, I'm starting to feel like you. I'm feeling old. And uh, a long time ago. But I praise God the book is still the same. And God's word never changes. And I want us to look tonight at what we need, what we need to stand firm for Christ. I want you to follow along with me as I read these four verses, verses 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we'll read down through verse uh, 14. Wherefore, take unto you, verse 13, the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And then we see in verse 14, stand therefore. Can I tell you that we need to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be willing to stand for that which is right, that which is holy. We need to be able to stand for that which is truth. And it is harder to stand today than it was in your parents' day. It's harder for us to stand for Christ today than it was in the days of our grandparents and our great-grandparents. Why? Because our world has gotten farther and farther and farther away from God. And I want to share some things tonight I believe will be a help to you about some things we need. Some things that you and I need to help us to be able to take a stand. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for truth. Lord, how wonderful it is that we have a truth to stand upon. How wonderful that you are our cornerstone. Lord, the rock upon which our life is built. Unshaking, settled, secure, eternal. Lord, tonight we often struggle. Lord, we struggle to take a stand for what is right. Lord, because it's difficult. Because it's not popular. Because it's sometimes looked down upon. Lord, I pray that just as you were willing to go to Calvary's cross for us, just as you were willing to die the cruel death of Calvary for me, that, Lord, we would be willing to take a stand. And having done all to stand, Lord, help us this evening. God, help me to preach or write your truth. Lord, I pray you'd give us some truth this evening that will strengthen us. 
that will help us to stand more securely as our days continue to get worse and worse until we see you. Lord, would you help, help us tonight work in hearts. In your precious name we pray. Amen. I want to read a couple other verses to you this evening. Ezekiel 22.30 says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. And I want you to listen to the words that God gave the prophet Ezekiel to write. But I found none. But I found none. Psalm 24 verse 3 says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Psalm 35 verse 2, Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for mine hell. Proverbs 12, 7, The wicked are overthrown and are not, but the house of the righteous shall stand. I believe tonight that God is still looking for Christians that are willing to stand. Christians that are willing to stand for that which is right and that which is holy. And that's a problem. So preacher, why is that a problem? It's a problem because we don't like to stand. It's a problem because it's getting harder to stand. And it's a problem because we are so often underprepared. Underprepared for taking a stand. It takes a special type of Christian. If you look there at verse 13 in our text in Ephesians 6, you'll notice something. It says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand when? In the evil day. In the evil day. And having done all to stand. Having done all to stand. Your job and my job, believer, is to stand. My job's not to fight the devil. And by the way, those today that say they're, they're doing battle with Satan, number one, they're idiots. Uh, number two, they have no biblical knowledge. Uh, number three, they're just plain wrong. You and I are not doing battle with the devil. Uh, we're not fighting the devil. Uh, can I tell you, if you battle the devil, you will lose. Uh, the Bible says if we, uh, he'll flee from us, but Ephesians 6, 11 says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Basically, it is not me fighting the devil. It's not me going against. Rather, it is the armor of God that withstands. How many of you have ever burnt your hand on a, on a cast iron skillet before? You ever done that? Ever reached out to grab a skillet and you forgot the handle was hot and you grabbed it and I, I've done that a few times. I think I did that Thanksgiving week when we were out uh, hunting. I was heating up some stuff in a cast iron skillet and, and I grabbed it. Brother Eric, that was a dumb thing to do. I should have called you. You could have told me, Pastor, don't do that. That's a dumb thing to do. You would have helped me. I know you would have encouraged me. So... What do we normally do? You, you grab, a, grab an oven mitt, grab a rag, grab anything to protect yourself to keep from getting burned. Can I tell you the armor of God? And it's not the message tonight, but the armor of God we read about here in Ephesians chapter 6 is that protection 
for you and for me, for my heart, for my life against the devil. It's not about us battling or doing battle with the devil. I can't stand against him. He's a strong foe. He's a deceitful enemy. Uh, he is a cunning figure, by the way, who often, the Bible says, not dressed in a red tail and horns, rather dressed as an angel of light. As an angel of light. But we need to stand. We need to take a stand. Can I tell you that God can provide for you and God has a plan for you if you and I are willing to just stand? If we're going to stand for the Lord, if we're going to stand against that which is wrong, if we're going to stand for righteousness and holiness, there are some things that you need. And I want us to have what we need to be ready to stand firm. I want us to stand solid in the Word of God. I want this local church, I want us to stand for that which is right and not to veer off course, not to, uh, to go a wrong direction, not to uh, change God's plan, but to stand firm. Number one tonight, we need a heart for the Savior. If you're going to stand firm for Christ, you and I have to have a heart for the Savior. You know, we have to have a heart for him. I'm reminded of, of David, King David, as a young boy went to his brothers and said, is there not a cause? He had a heart for his God. He had a heart to stand up for his God. He had a relationship with his God and he had a heart for his God. You know, I can't have a heart for God if I don't know God. I can't have a heart for God and a heart for my Savior uh, if I am not saved. It's a result, number one, of a personal salvation. Now, I know this is a Sunday night. I know you say, Pastor, you know, we're, we're here on a Sunday night. We're obviously, you know, obviously I'm a Christian because I'm in church on a Sunday night. Can I tell you, being in a church building on Sunday night doesn't any more make you a car than being in a, uh, make you a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. You better know that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Say, so, oh, Pastor, I grew up in a Christian home. My, mom is, my mom's a Christian. My dad's a Christian. I'm not talking about their relationship. I'm talking about do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about you knowing about Christ or being familiar or, you know, being a church kid. I'm asking you tonight, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? I think one of the reasons so many don't stand for Christ is they're not his. You don't have a personal relationship with him. You don't know him. You know about him. You, you know how to dress the part. You know how to play the game. But you know you're not truly born again. We have to know him as a personal Savior. I'll never develop a heart for the Savior if I do not have salvation. Salvation, and we know this, it's not turning a new leaf. It's not going from sin to doing good things. Rather, it is a relationship with Christ that is life-changing. And I will not have, absolutely will not have a heart for Christ if I am not born again. It's not only a result of personal salvation, it's a result of total surrender. Total surrender. I've got a Bible Back there in my office, a Bible I found going through a box a month or so ago. In the inside cover of 
one of the Bibles there in my office is the day August, I've got it written August 12th, August 14th. I can't remember the exact date. 1994. I wrote on the front cover of my Bible. I remember very vividly when I wrote it. Because I wrote it after I had went and got alone with God on my knees. And I told God, God, I will go anywhere in the world you want me to go. Anywhere. I had surrendered to him. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about surrendering that my life belonged to him. I will never have, you will never have a true heart for the Savior until he has you. Until he has you. All of you. Not just a part of you. Not just a little bit of you. But all of you. You know, I, I have no right to say this is what I'm going to do. I remember when my wife and I were traveling years ago, traveling, raising financial support to come and plant a church in the city of Edmonton. Maybe you've heard of that city. I remember we were traveling across the U.S. and Every time we go to a church, I remember any time I met teenagers, I'd always ask the question, especially if it was a pastor's kids, I always asked this question every teenager I interacted with while we traveled. What do you think God wants for your life? Most of the kids I asked were church kids. I would say 25% of the kids I interacted with were probably pastor's kids or uh, had been in church all their life. Can I tell you, sadly, and this is 20 years ago, I didn't keep exact records, but I would say this is a fair assessment. I would say more than 75% of the people I asked that question, what do you think God wants for your life, would say, I have no idea. I remember one who said, I don't care. Pastor's kid. I, I remember saying, well, would you, and the, my second question was always, would you be willing to pray? And ask God what he wants for your life. Over half simply said, I'll think about it. I'm not going to ask you that question tonight, but if I did, and if you were honest, I wonder how many of you'd have to say, I don't know. I wonder how many of you, if you were pressed and say, would you pray and ask God what he wants for your life? And if it's different than what you're doing, would you be willing to do it? I'm afraid over half of us might say, I'll think about it. Because we don't want, we want, we don't want to yield control of our life. But if we're to have a heart for our Savior, He has to have you. Every bit of you. Every bit of me. Why is it that we have a trouble taking a stand for Christ today? Because He doesn't even have our future down here. Oh yeah, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be with him, but between now and then, my life's mine. I call the shots. That's why we won't stand. Is he an owner and possessor of all you are, or does he have just a lease agreement, and when you die, you get to be with him? If we're going to have a heart for the Savior, he needs to have our life, total surrender.
Now, how does that happen? By the way, I'm not seeing it happens that uh, we can say, oh, I'm totally surrendered, I'm totally surrendered. But it comes by dying dying to self. And we see a scripture that says, I die daily. Why? You take and make a sacrifice in the Old Testament. They would take a lamb. They'd sacrifice that lamb on the altar. That lamb would never leave the altar. It would be burned with fire. It was sacrificed there. It would never get back up again. You and I yield our lives and we surrender. What do we do? We get back up off the altar. We, Lord, I, I surrender. I change my mind, Lord. I don't think I surrender. Okay, Lord, I surrender. Okay, I don't think I change my mind again. I die daily, the Bible says. It's that dying to self. How many of you have ever been to a funeral? I know there's some probably haven't. I, I have a dear friend of mine. He's never been to a funeral. Those of you that have been to a funeral where there was an open casket, and the deceased, the body of the deceased, by the way, just so you know, they aren't there. That ain't them. <laughs> they're not there. Uh, they're not going to be with themselves until the resurrection if they're a Christian. That, that's it. But growing up in the South, Brother Mike, you know what you heard about funerals? My grandmother had always asked. My grandmother was the queen of, of having to know about funerals. What, what was she wearing? They talk about what the dead person was wearing. And then, how'd they look? They look dead. Uh, they look so natural. They look, I never understood that. That's weird to me. I mean, you could walk up to the casket, and I, I don't want to offend anyone tonight. I hope this doesn't offend you, but you could walk up to the casket with a dead person in it, Brother Jim, and you can say, you look terrible. You know, they don't care. You could say, that, that's the ugliest outfit. Why did you pick, that's the stupidest looking outfit. They don't care. They're not there. It doesn't matter. They're gone. I remember I was in Chicago years ago with a man who's in charge of the bus ministry at First Baptist, and I worked with him in ministry, and we went to this family's home, and they spoke Spanish. They spoke no English at all. I mean nothing. They were brand new from Mexico. They see, uh, I think they, they knew yes and no, that or okay. That was it. The only English words they knew. And we found out they spoke no English. They had a little baby. They're holding a baby. I was with this guy. He was older than me, and he was probably in his 30s at the time or late 20s at least. I was an 18-year-old kid. I'm with him, and they hand him the baby. He's holding the baby. Now, he knows they don't speak any English, and he's trying to mess with me, and he's smiling, and he's holding the baby, Brother Mike, you're not going to believe this. He looked and said, that's the ugliest baby I've ever seen. And he's smiling, talking about how ugly the baby is. I'm dying. I'm like, these people are going to kill us. And he's just smiling to people like, gracias, gracias, gracias. They had no idea what he was saying. I was praying, please, Lord, don't let them learn English anytime soon. He could have said anything he wanted. Why? They couldn't understand him. It didn't mean anything. They read, his, they read his facial expression, his body language. They couldn't understand his language. Can I tell you that a dead person doesn't care what you say? Christian, when we are truly dead to self, it's not about us. We then have a heart for our Savior. 
It's then that we can take a stand and stand firm for Christ. It's then that we will be willing to do so. Number two, I said you need a heart for the Savior. Number two, we need to have a hand on the sword. A hand on the sword. We see in our text in verse 17 of Ephesians, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. I'm not going to ask you tonight, but I am assuming that every person in here has a copy of the Word of God. If you do not, do not leave this building without seeing me. I'll make sure you have one before you leave. Probably many of you have multiple copies of the Word of God. Probably many of you have many, many, many copies of the Bible. You, you have a Bible. You have the Word of God. There are places where there is no Bible. There are people who have no Bible in their language. Brother Jim uh, and Miss Ruth are traveling. By the way, just as an update, the, the sale for their house is going through. It closes in December. Uh, thanks for praying for them. But uh, Brother Jim, the ministry of First Bible International, is they're getting the Bible to people who don't even have a Bible in their language. It's not they don't own one. There isn't a Bible in their language. But we have the Word of God. We have the Bible. But... Does the Bible get in your heart? Do you have a handhold on the Word of God? You know, a soldier, if he's in battle, wants to have that sword with him. I've had nightmares when I was a kid growing up. I, I grew up in rural West Virginia. Uh, I grew up hunting as a kid. And so I, I had nightmares as a kid about hunting. Now, can I tell you what my nightmares were? They weren't about animals attacking me. I have no fear of animals attacking me. I probably should, but I don't. I, I would have this recurring dream that I would go hunting. And I'd be there, Brother Gerald. There would be the biggest deer that ever lived on planet Earth. And I would realize I had no gun. And in my dream, I realized I forgot my gun at the house. And I felt so useless, so helpless. Like, what am I going to do? I don't have my weapon. Christian, so many of us, we have the Word of God. But we don't have it in our hand and in our heart. If we're going to take a stand on the Word of God, we were, we're going to have to have a hand on the sword. We're going to have to get to know the Word of God. How am I going to do that? Number one, you have to believe it. I venture to say that many Christians don't read the Bible, never study the Bible, because they don't believe the Bible. Oh, they, they believe the parts they want to believe. They, they, they Maybe they believe the gospel, but they don't truly believe it. The Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing of the word of God. Let me help you with something as you read the Bible. Can I tell you what you do when you come to parts of the Bible you don't understand? How many of you know there are parts like that? How many know many times you come to a place and go, I don't know that. I can't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. Can I tell you what to do? Believe it. Believe it. 
I remember a, a friend who asked me the question one day, the first time I had coffee with him. He said to me, he said, you're not one of those Christians that really believe that God created the world. He went on this whole list of things. And I said, yes, sir. I said, I'll tell you what's even worse. I really believe there was a man named Jonah that got swallowed by a whale and got puked up. He said, you got to be kidding me. How can you believe that? Because the Bible says it. If we're going to have our hand on the word of God and get to know the word of God, we have to believe it. We have to believe it's true. We have to have faith to trust it. If we're going to stand on it, we better believe it. You know why we don't stand? Because we don't believe it. We say we believe it, but we only truly stand for that which we truly believe. I have to believe it, number two, if I'm going to have my hand on the sword, I have to behave it. Behave it. So preacher, what's that mean? Do what it says. Observe to do. Observe to do. I have to do what the Bible says. If I'm going to get a, a firm hold on the Word of God, the sword, the Word of God, if I'm going to have a firm hold on Scripture to be able to stand on Scripture, I have to behave and be obedient to it. It is the Word of God that feeds our soul. It fences you and I safely from the world. Uh, Psalm 91 verse 10 says, There shall no evil befall thy neighbor. Uh, shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling? For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Can I tell you that the Lord is the one who protects and guards his followers, a worldly Christian who does not believe the promise of God, does not hang on the promise of God, does not follow God's word, Psalm 112, verse 3 says, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Proverbs 3, 21, My son, let them not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. The word of God will fortify you. It will focus your sight and bring it centered to what God wants for your life. I need my hand on the sword. I need to know this book. The Bible says in the last days perilous times will come. I better have a grasp on this word. As the world gets farther and farther away from God, I better have a better grasp, a hold of Scripture. I better be hanging on tightly. It frees me. Having a hold of the word of God frees me to serve God. What's that mean? Psalm 119 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Verse 11 in Psalm 119 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. The gospel of John chapter 15 and verse 3 says, Now are ye clean. Through the word which I have spoken unto you. If I want to be used of God, if I want to be able to firmly take a stand for God and for right and for holiness, I have to have a handle. I have to have a handle on this book, on the word of God. The only thing that will solve the sin and the slaughter in our world today 
And can I tell you, our world is full of it. You can't hardly watch the news without seeing something just breaks your heart. I confess I've got to where I, I don't watch the news. I don't have, I don't have a TV subscription anyway, but I, I hardly even look at news stories on social media. Why? Because it's so rarely good news. The fact is, the answer is not politics. The answer is not a reform of society and culture. The answer is the Word of God. It is the answer. I need to have a heart for my Savior. I need to have a hand on the sword if I'm going to stand for Him. And number three, I need to have a hatred. Say, Pastor, you need to hate? I need to have a hatred for sin. A hatred for sin. I'm going to tell you a story, and I, I hope it doesn't offend any of you with delicate sensitivities towards animals. Let me start by saying that those that know me know that I absolutely love dogs. I'm a dog person. I love dogs. I've never met a dog that I didn't like, uh, except maybe poodles. I'm not sure about poodles and chihuahuas, but no, I, I, I love dogs. I, I'm, I'm a dog person. I don't, I don't hate cats. I just love dogs so much. It seems like I hate cats. But I, I love dogs. And I, I've, when I was a young boy, we had a, I've had dogs since I was a kid. Had a Boston Terrier when I was, I think, 16 years old, 15 or 16, 15. I got my first beagle. Now, my beagle was not a house pet. Now, he was, I took care of them, and I loved them, but they were hunting dogs. They were working dogs. And the job of the beagle was to chase rabbits and hunt rabbits. And where I'm from, I, I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm just telling you the way it is. Where I'm from, if a farmer or someone sees a dog of any kind with a collar or without a collar chasing a deer, that dog will be killed. No questions asked. That's just the reality of the farm country I grew up in. Any livestock, any, any big game, the dog will be killed. I had a dog named Hank. He was a stray that showed up on the farm, and I, I took him on as a project. He became my rabbit dog. He was a little bit rebellious. Uh, he had his own mind. Uh, you've heard the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I kind of believe that. Uh, me and Hank, we, we didn't always agree on things. Uh, I'd take him out hunting, and I'd say, okay, man, let's go. Come on, let's go home. And he would look and go, I don't think so. You go home. I'm going to keep running around. I'm not ready to come back yet. And one time, I watched as a deer jumped, and I watched my dog take off and chase that deer. It made me sick at my stomach. Because I was worried that once he chased a deer, he would continue to do so. And then if he did so, there was a chance it would cause him to lose his life. So I decided, I did some research, my 16-year-old brain. <laughs> I did some research. I read some outdoor magazines, some dog training things. How, and I, I've, I read about how you break how do you keep a dog from chasing something they're not supposed to chase? 
So here's what I did. Now, it's going to sound cruel to you, but understand, I wanted to give you that information so you understood why I did what I did. A deer has a gland, a scent gland, on its leg here called a tarsal gland. It's a bit longer hair. The buck and the doe both have. The bucks are normally a bit rancid, Brother Jim. They don't smell the nicest. And uh, on the buck, uh, whenever he's really trying to impress a doe, he'll squat and pee right down his leg so it gets right on there to make it really pungent. And it was near hunting season, and we had a couple of dead deer carcasses because we had killed some deer. And I took and I took those tarsal glands of those deer and I cut them off of the discarded legs from the butchering. And I put them inside of a gunny sack. And then I put my dog inside of that same gunny sack. I tied the top of that gunny sack closed. I threw a rope across the limb of a walnut tree in my grandparents' side yard. I tied it to that bag. I had that gunny sack with my dog, my live dog, unhurt dog, and those tarsal glands that sent inside of that bag. And then I took that bag, that rope, and I twisted and twisted and twisted and twisted and spun that bag around and spun it and spun it and spun it and spun it. And then I got back and spun it and let it go. And that, that dog and that bag was spinning, 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 spinning around and around and around and around and around. And when it quit, I got the bag and I spun it back up and I let it go again. I spun that dog around. It was better than any, any ride at Disney World. It was scarier than any amusement park that ever was. Uh, he got the ride of his life and he got sick. How many have ever heard the phrase, sick as a dog? I personally know why that phrase is, I've seen a sick dog. He got sick, he vomited in that bag. You know what he never did again? By the way, I let him out of the bag. You know what he never, ever, ever did again? He never chased a deer. My reasoning was, and the training that I read about was, to cause him to hate that smell so much that he would want nothing to do with it. For him, it worked. For him, it worked. Christian, you and I need to learn to hate sin. I'm not talking about hating sinners. Too many Christians think, oh, yeah, I got I to gotta hate sinners. You read a different book than I read. Jesus didn't hate sinners. By the way, the woman that the whole town said, she's, she's wicked, she's an evil person. Jesus allowed her to come, to touch the hem of his garment, to bow before him. Jesus, when brought the woman caught in adultery, didn't say, you're a wicked, evil woman, you get away from me. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Does that mean Jesus loved the sin of adultery? No, but he loved the sinner. Christian, we have taken it from loving the sinner, and we've learned to love the sin as well. There has to be a divide. We need to love sinners. Don't ever let your heart turn to the point where you begin to have a hatred for those who commit sin. That's not God's purpose for you or for me. Can I tell you what we are? 
sinners without Christ. But we need to have a hatred for sin. We need to stop becoming so friendly with sin. We need to stop flirting with sin and getting closer and closer and closer to sin. And we need to learn to hate what God hates. How do we do that? As we get closer to Him, as we get closer to this book, as we spend more time in it, we develop a hatred for sin. Can I tell you, sin destroys. Some of you tonight could give testimony. Some of you come from broken homes that were a result that were a result of sin. Some of you carry baggage and scars in your life that came as a result of sin in someone else's life. You understand it. Sadly, so often, even those of us who do know and understand, we still listen to the lie of the devil. and We get the idea it'll be okay. We can handle it. We need to hate sin. If we're to take a stand for what is right, we have to hate what God hates. Number four, if we're going to take a stand for Christ, we need a holiness. A holiness that separates. A holiness that separates. God said, be ye holy for I am holy. There's a reason for God's holiness. By the way, God's mandated. This is a mandate of God. Be ye holy. This is not a, would you like holiness today? No. It's not an optional thing. It's not a, an extra. It's mandated by God. Let me, let me read a statement to you. Holiness never leads to haughtiness. Don't, don't miss that statement. Holiness does not lead you to sit around and think you're better than everybody else. That's not holiness. That's self-righteousness. True holiness does not lead you to feel as though you are above somebody else. That's not holiness. Don't miss that. So many, we we look at self-righteousness and we confuse self-righteousness with holiness. That's not holiness. The holier, not self-righteous, but the holier you become, the less you become impressed with yourself. The less you become impressed with yourself. You can be as holy as you want to be. You can be as separated as you want to be. But God wants us to be separated to him. I'm not talking about self-righteousness and you holding up how good you are. If that's your idea of holiness, you've missed the boat completely. You're in the wrong place. My first day of grade 8, I went to a new school. I went to Ohio Valley Christian School. I went to a public school all through grade 7 and grade 8. My parents put me in a Christian school. I had the privilege of going to a Christian school. I I wish I could have gone to a Christian school as wonderful as many of our young folks get to go to. It it wasn't quite the same. It was a good school, but not quite uh, like Harvest. But I got to go to a Christian school. It was a pretty large Christian school. and I got there in the morning, and there was a big room about... Oh, probably one and a half times this size. And we're all in there waiting for the bell to start, for everybody to go to classes and homerooms and all of that. And I walked in. I didn't know anybody. 
absolutely no one at the school. And I walked in, and as I walked in, one of the guys said, hey, man, what's your name? I said, I'm Brian. He said, oh, you're with me, man. You're in my class. I said, great. The bell rang. He said, hey, come with me. I went with him. I went upstairs, went to the third floor, went to the first room there down the hallway uh, from the, the stairwell there. I sat down in the homeroom. I sat down, and as the homeroom teacher got up, the homeroom teacher got up and said, hello, I'm, he mentioned his name, and he said, I'll be your homeroom teacher this year for your senior year. I was in the grade 12 homeroom. Now, Brother Mike, the reason that was the case, I was this size when I was 13. I, I was fully this size. I had hair, uh, but I was this, I stopped growing at 13. So when someone this size walks in as a new student, he just assumed he's got to be a senior. Uh, they don't make anybody that big unless they're seniors. Uh, so he took me with him. I looked back, my newfound friend. I said, hey, man, I'm in grade eight. He's like, what? I'm like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in grade eight, man. <laughs> this, this isn't my home room. Like, where do I go? I feel like an idiot now. And he told me, I went down, I walked in the room, all the other kids are about this tall, Brother Mike. Uh, looked like I was in a whole class full of Filipinos. Uh, but there wasn't. There was a Filipino, but he was in grade seven that year. But anyway, I, I went in the class, and I was the giant. But I was in the wrong place. I, I wasn't where I should have been. So often as Christians, we live our lives where we shouldn't be because we're comfortable. We live our lives unseparated because we're comfortable not being separated to God. We want to stay where we are. We want to stay in that comfortable place. Sanctification precedes holiness. You know, it's not, we're not talking about a doctrine of perfection. No one is perfect. By the way, anyone that says they're perfect is a liar. Uh... It's been said when somebody says he's perfect, you better grab a hold of your wife and grab a hold of your wallet because he's going to take one or the other. Uh, there's no one that's perfect. Sanctification is to be set aside that we might become more like Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren set apart. Set apart to him, sanctified. Some things that God sanctifies and sets apart. By the way, there are some things, the word of God, God sets apart some things that are right. I can't change those. But there are things in your life and my life that sometimes we set apart to God and then we want to take it back. We want to set it apart and then, oh no, I changed my mind, God. We need a holiness in our life that separates us from the world to God, willing to stand, willing to take a stand for him. Number five, and I hasten just two more things. Christian, if we're going to take a stand, we need a habit of supplication. A habit of supplication. A lot of people have habits how many of you, the first thing you do when you wake up is you think, I've got to have a cup of coffee? How many of you have that habit? 
I'll look at my wife. Sometimes I'll wake up. I'll look at her and I'll say, you know what time it is? And she'll say, coffee time? She knows me well. Uh, but I, 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 before I get my coffee, Brother Mike, I have to see my dog. I got to go get Yeti and pat Yeti on the head first. Then I can get my coffee. Uh, I have to let him loose. If I forget to let him out of Hannah's room, he cries like a little child. Uh, he has to be there while I make my coffee. We, we all have different habits. Some have some pretty bad habits. By the way, some of us have some very bad habits we don't think anybody else knows about, but God does. But there is a habit that we need to have, and that is a habit of supplication. 1 John 5, 14 says, and this is, the rec- this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Christian, we will not take a stand, and I believe this, until we have come to the place where we have a habit of going to God. For everything. Because I can stand for Christ knowing, Lord, I need your help. Knowing he will answer. We need a habit of prayer. We need a habit of going to God for every need. Jesus taught the disciples to pray. It wasn't the Lord's prayer. It was the model prayer he taught the disciples. He taught them to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. He taught them to be dependent, hanging on the Lord. Christian, we need that dependence in prayer. And lastly, we'll close with this, number six. If we're to take a stand, we need to have a hope. A hope in the second coming. A hope in the second coming. Let me say this. This is not just a hope that everything's going to work out okay. I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about a hope that I hope this is okay. I'm not talking about a hope as in, well, I really hope he's coming back. More than that, 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know. We know. That when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Can I tell you, this hope is not a hope, I hope this happens. It's a hope of I cannot wait. I hate, I hate to do this because I'm going to get mad at somebody tonight. But how many of you like snow? I promise to try not to be mad at you. How many of you like snow? Brother Gerald, I'm going to try really hard not to be angry with you. Brother Gerald likes snow. He's a weirdo. We should cast him out in the outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's good preaching. And then I'll say it again. We should cast him out of darkness. Man, I'm going to become a wind-sucking preacher here in a minute. But he likes snow. (laughs) He likes snow. He's a weirdo. No, he likes it. And you know what? He lives in a good place lives in Edmonton. Guess what? I hate to say it. It's probably going to snow. <sighs> now, if he lived in Hawaii, where brother, where brother Ram is, Brother Ram's back in Hawaii now, 
If he was in Hawaii, Brother Gerald, do you, if you lived there, you never lived in Hawaii, did you? You did live in Korea. Did they have snow in the part of Korea where you were? They did have snow there. That's why you went to that part of Korea. Uh, but if he lived in Hawaii and he liked snow, he would have a, boy, I really wish it would snow someday. But it's not going to, but I wish it would. Maybe when the volcano blows and the ash comes and the ash is falling down, he could pretend it was snow. But in Edmonton, he can be very hopeful. He's like, I'm going to get to see snow because I live in Edmonton. I mean, it's going to snow. It's just that that's the way, of the, the way the climate is, although climate change, I don't know, global warming is going to be like the tropics soon. But he's hopeful for snow. Can I tell you my hope in Christ is much more than Gerald's hope for snow in Alberta? Because as much as it will be strange, it is possible that it may not snow this winter. It's not probable. Lord, please make it possible. But it's not probable. But it could happen. But can I tell you, Jesus is coming back. If we're to take a stand for Christ, we need to have a hope, a security, and understanding the fact that he's coming again. How many have ever been left at home when mom and dad went somewhere and mom or dad said, before we get home, I want you to you know, clean the house, clean your room, mow the yard, milk the cow, uh, and Brother Hubert's case, feed the dinosaur when he was a boy. Uh, mom and dad said, hey, before we get home, you do this. Ever, ever had that happen? And they take off. They're going to be gone for a while. What do you do? First thing you do, you get a bowl of cereal, and you watch cartoons, right? Am I right? Uh, you sit down. You watch TV. You, got your, you get some food. But then time passes, and you realize it's getting a bit closer. Mom or dad's coming home, so what do you do? Ah, I got to get busy. And you start rushing around trying to do what you were supposed to do. Why? Mom dad's coming home. And they told you, you better have X, Y, or Z done before they get there. Christian, Jesus is coming back. He's left us a duty. He's left us a purpose. And he is coming again. And when we have that hope, that hope in the second coming, that realization, that assurance of knowing he's coming again, it becomes easier. For us to stand for him because he's coming again. I hope if the Lord tarries his coming, I hope that you would be willing to stand for Christ. I hope that if things become much more difficult for you as a believer to stand for Christ in our culture, and it's coming, I hope you'll be willing just to stand. And having done all to stand. But that will not happen. If we do not have a hold of these things. May we stand firm for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray you'd help us. Help us to stand firm. Lord, I pray that as we've seen some scripture tonight, some encouragement, I pray that we would receive it. I pray you'd work in our hearts. I pray you'd help us to do business with you tonight, maybe, Lord, as you've maybe placed some decision on our heart. 
Lord, I pray that we'd make commitments tonight. That we'd be willing to stand. If nobody else will stand, God, help us to stand. May we be faithful to you. You've been so faithful to us. Lord, would you be glorified this evening? In your precious name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us tonight? The Colton leads us in a song of invitation this evening. The altar's open. We'll sing number 482, Where He Leads Me. Number 482. tonight that you'll will go with him all the way I can promise you this you'll never go alone you'll never stand alone I can testify tonight that he's never left me I failed him many times I've disobeyed him many times I've left his purpose many times but he's never left me Lord, thank you tonight for the opportunity we have to stand. Oh, God, I pray that we would. I pray we'd stand for our children, for our children's children. I pray we'd stand for our nation, for our country, for our world. I pray we'd stand for those that are lost in sin and need to know the truth. I pray we would stand as a bulwark and against the perverseness of our society that would go against this book. Most of all, Lord, I pray that we would stand to glorify you, to honor you. God, help us to do so. Help us to stand firm. And having done all, to stand. Bless us now, Lord. Dismiss us with your grace. In Jesus' precious name we pray.